And uh, to get to fill his pulpit, I, uh, I know the kind of shoes that I'm standing in this morning. So I'm uh, thankful to be here. So I hope you found Philippians 1. Um, I'm going to be in verse 9 through 11. But uh, I'm actually going to read verses 3 through 11. So uh, this is the word of the Lord. I thank you, my God, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, um, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you, about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus, to the glory and praise of God. Will you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the opportunity to meet together, whether digitally or in person, to hear your word. God, I pray that we do hear your word this morning. Father, I pray that the words that I say are honoring to this text, honoring to you, and that this congregation will learn to love you more and more with knowledge and discernment. And I pray all this in your precious name. Amen. So, Paul and Timothy are writing a letter to Christians in Philippi. And as normal, Paul begins with thanksgiving, a greeting, thanksgiving, and prayer. The Philippians are true believers and have been partnering with him in the gospel from the first day until now. And Paul expresses confidence in their endurance in the Lord and also an astonishing love for this congregation and and a desire to be with this church. So in verse 4, Paul mentions that he prays for the Philippians regularly. But in verse 9 through 11, which is where we're going to be this morning, we get the content and the goal of that prayer. Now, this text, when I first moved to Louisville, Kentucky in the fall of 2014, which seems like ancient history at this point, um, when I first moved there, I had heard stories of seminarians who came away from seminary, oddly enough, cold in their faith and not not loving the Lord more but being puffed up with knowledge they they came away with pride and arrogance rather than a deep-seated affection a well-grounded love for the Lord and so I read a book prior to starting my classes called how to stay Christian in seminary which uh is a good idea, um, and I was like, well, I do want to do that, so I'm going to read this book. And uh, one of the things that they suggested before going to seminary was to come up with some sort of mission statement, something that you can refer to um, again and again throughout your, throughout your theological education that says, this is what I'm aiming for. And what I was aiming for was found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. 
I wanted my love to abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. And so this passage is not only, I mean, it's a great passage regardless, but it's personal for me. Because for the last six years, this has been kind of my life verse. This has been the the verse that has driven me to do what I'm doing. But I'm here to say that it is not just for seminarians. It is not just for people pursuing theological education, but that this has deeply practical applications for the church at large. So the main point this morning... There's one thing, if there's one central theme of, uh, I almost said Matthew because I spend so much time in Matthew, uh, of Philippians 1, 9 through 11, it is this. Ethical excellence shaped by a well-informed love bears much fruit for the believer to the glory and praise of God. Say it another way. Right behavior driven or fueled by a learned love of God and man leads to purity and blamelessness. All right. <laughs> I'm getting instant feedback of what I'm doing, so I can. <laughs> All right, we're good to go. So I'll say it again. The main point right behavior. Driven by a learned love of God and man leads to purity and blamelessness for you to the glory and praise of God. And I have three points this morning. Number one, a well-informed love. Number two, eschatological ethics. And number three, to the glory and praise of God. So starting first with a well-informed love. If you'll look with me in verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So, the heart of Paul's prayer is here in verse 9. It is that their love will abound more and more. That's the key. That's the the central theme that ties the rest of this together. So, So, he prays that their love would abound more and more. So, a few points on that. First of all, love's object, so, so who the, the Philippians are loving is unspecified. It is, it is not qualified and it is unlimited, which means, much like um, Mr. Barbie prayed just a moment ago, it, it is love of God and man. So first, love of God for who he is. Do you love God for who he is? Do you love the fact that he is a triune God? Do you love the fact that he is our creator and for what he's done? Not only in creation, but also in redemption, in sending his son, in saving us, in all of those things. Those are all good and right things to learn to love about God, but also we are to love man. So his the, the Paul's prayer is that their love for both God and man would continue to increase, which means that you will, as you walk through your Christian life, you will learn to love your neighbor more and more. But you will also learn to love your enemies and your friends, everyone, more and more, as well as learning to love the Lord. It also means that some love is already present in the Philippian people. So they are believers, and they, so they already love God to some extent. 
They have clearly shown Paul a significant amount of love in the fact that if you were paying attention when we read verses 3 through 8, how much affection is poured out in this greeting, in this beginning thanksgiving for them. If you go and read Galatians, it's a totally different intro, intro to the letter. It's a very harsh and rebuking letter. But with Philippians, it starts off with a glowing review. Now, Paul will have some things that he wants to correct throughout the letter, but it is, they, they already have, to a certain extent, some love for either for Paul and for God. So Paul is not getting on their case about being, um, about being unloving. He just wants to see it grow, which means that our love should not be stagnant. We must not be content with our current state of love for God. We should always be striving to love more and more. Our striving should result in greater love. And if it's not, we're doing something wrong. And it basically sets up for the rest of the letter, which is basically a call to Christian unity among the church grounded in love in, humi- in, in, love in humility. They love God and Paul, as is evident in the early verses, but apparently they were having some trouble loving one another. So it's, it's interesting. They seem to love God, but there, there is a lack of unity among certain members of the church. So, so this really is a comprehensive call to love. The people sitting in the pew next to you, the people in Cleveland in general. I know, I guess we're not technically in Cleveland, but Cleveland, I'm not from here, so this is all Cleveland to me. Um, and, and people beyond to love the nations and to continue to love the Lord. But second... Love is not directionless. While love is not limited or qualified, it does have a direction. And that love love abounds with or in knowledge and all discernment. So our love for God and man must be properly directed. It abounds in knowledge and discernment. So knowledge... The word for knowledge is a really broad term, and it shows that true Christian love has a mental aspect. There is a necessary learning that accompanies love. In order to truly love someone, you must know them. There is a mental aspect to love. If a man comes home to his wife and and he praises his wife saying, I love your beautiful blue eyes and your long blonde hair. That compliment is only a true compliment if his wife actually has blue eyes and blonde hair. If he married a brown-haired, green-eyed woman, this is not going to be met very well. The same thing is true for our loving God. We must know certain facts about who he is so that when we praise him, it is, it is praising him for who he actually is. And more than just knowing facts, but we must know, know our fellow man's wants, needs, aspirations, dreams, desires. That's when you truly start to love someone. So there is a mental aspect to love. But it's not just knowledge. Love abounds in knowledge and all discernment. Now this is a very unique term. It is actually the only place in the New Testament where the term for discernment is used. The, the word tra- is translated um, discernment. There are other words that are translated discernment, but the Greek term behind the word discernment, this is the only place where it is used. Where knowledge emphasizes a mental aspect of love, 
This term focuses on the practical or moral outworkings of that knowledge. It is the practical side of learning. So discernment is modified by the adjective all. It is all discernment. Now this does not mean a comprehensive depth of understanding. It doesn't mean that with enough effort and enough striving you can totally understand every moral dilemma, every ethical um, challenge, or even everything that God has revealed to us in Scripture. What it means is a broad perception. Gerald Hawthorne says it, the ability to make proper moral decisions in the midst of a vast array of choices. Or, to put it another way, as as D.A. Carson says, moral perception across the entire gamut of life's experiences. In other words, no matter what life throws at you, Whatever situation, whatever comes, you are a person marked by all discernment, a love that is abounding in all discernment, is able to meet those choices with, the, with, with, with Scripture and with truth. They are able to make right moral choices and decision-making regardless of the situation. So it is with this sort of thinking and moral discernment that love is to be directed. But why? Why does love have to be directed in this way? Isn't love in and of itself a virtue, right? It's th- that, that is something that our society, just in general, seems to push for. Love is a good thing in and of itself. And that is true as long as it is properly directed. D.A. Carson, again, helpfully says, Without the cr- constraints of knowledge and insight, love very easily downgrades to an emotional sentimentality a, or, or into the kind of mushy pluralism the world often confuses with love. It is a severe danger to confuse an easy good nature, a, a going along with whatever people are doing with what a Christian mindset is supposed to be, to confuse it with Christian love. Our world does this all the time. When you call something sinful that is popular in our time, it is considered to be unloving or judgmental. Today's only sin from our society is to call something a sin. If you advocate for a biblical view of sexuality, often people will throw the I thought Christians were supposed to be loving. How is this loving to to deny someone from being able to do what they want? More and more parenting guides are encouraging their parents to not tell their kids no, to let them them do do what they want, to express themselves however they want so that way they learn who they want to be. But church, this is not true love. This is not Christian love. Christian love has to be properly directed, first to God as Savior and then to man as the one created in his his image. Christian love has to be properly informed by the Bible, by God's revelation of himself and what he has for us to do. So the question is, how do we make sure that our love is abounding in knowledge and discernment. So I I have three ways, three ways to help make sure that your love is abounding in knowledge and discernment. Number one, read your Bible and meditate on Scripture. With statements this profound, I am surprised that uh, church search committees are not knocking down my door trying to get me to preach at their churches. Right? It's so simple. 
How do we know, how, how do we grow in knowledge? How do we grow in moral discernment? Well, the first way is to read your Bible. So how are you doing with your daily Bible reading? How is your daily communion with God through his word? It's July, which means we're over halfway through the year. Is your New Year's resolution to read the Bible through in one year still on track? Or is your chronological study Bible collecting dust with the bookmarker somewhere between Exodus and Deuteronomy? Right? I've been there. I've, I've done both. I, I've, I've successfully completed them. I've not successfully completed them. But let me relieve you of that burden this morning. You should be reading your Bible daily. And I think it is an admirable goal to read it through every single year. I think that that's something that you should strive for. But if you get behind in your Bible reading plan, more often than not, people stop reading their Bibles. Because then you start doing the math of how long it's going to take you to read to catch up. And you're like, I can't read 40 chapters a day to get through the Bible in a year. You may not have that kind of time. But don't let getting behind stop you completely. That defeats the purpose. There is no exam at the end of this year. Your membership at Old Oak Bible Church is not going to be contingent on whether or not you made it all the way through the Bible this year. That's not what we're doing. The goal, the goal of reading your Bible, when you come to, to come to your Bible in the morning or the evening or both, when you sit down, your goal is to fix your eyes on God. It is, it is to learn to love the Lord more. It is to commune with Him deeply. It is to shape your life by the Word, not to just get it done. I've, I've successfully read Bible plans, and I have, I have faltered in Leviticus as much as anyone. But the time in my life when I, was most, when I was growing the most, when I was most deeply communing with the Lord, was actually my freshman and sophomore year of college. Because I wasn't concerned with reading through the entire Bible or, or, or reading a certain number of chapters a day. I was reading one chapter of the Bible a day. If you do that, it'll take you like three and a half years to get through the entire Bible. But I was reading one chapter a day, and I was soaking everything I read up. I spent time meditating on what the Bible said. Every, it was just so fresh and clear and I looked forward to it every day. I eventually added another chapter where I read a proverb a day. And that was the most beneficial time of my life as term, in terms of molding my actions and molding my heart to love the Lord. So, let me encourage you, even if you are behind in your plan, maybe you are, 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 have, haven't picked up your Bible in quite some time, pick up your Bible, and even if you only read a little bit, Pick it up and commune with the Lord daily. I want to give you one practical way to get back on track in case you are struggling with, with, with your quiet time. So I was at a youth camp, and this guy to told us about a thing called the 119 Revolution. So he's referring to Psalm 119. It is the longest chapter in the Bible. It is 176 verses. It consists of 22 stanzas of eight verses. Um, it's a Hebrew acrostic, so each verse or each stanza begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So here's the method. You can take one stanza, which is only eight verses. So you take eight verses every single day for 22 straight days. It doesn't take that long. 
Reading eight verses you can do in probably two minutes. But what you do is you read, you read those eight verses, and then you pick one of the eight verses to sit and think on, to meditate on, underline, write out what it means, what, put it in your own words, to just maybe memorize it if you have time, that, to, to make that your verse for the day. And you do that for 22 straight days. It's 176 verses about delighting in the word and the law of the Lord. So it accomplishes two things. First of all, it gets you in the habit. Experts say it takes around three weeks to form a habit. So this, this would be just over three weeks of every single day picking up the word, getting in the habit of reading the word. But secondly, it should make you love the word of God more because it is literally 176 verses of David just extolling the Lord for how good and, and pleasing and wonderful his law is. So hopefully, if you do this, I've actually done this I think three times now. At three different points in my life, when my quiet time stopped or my quiet time got cold, I started with Psalm 119, and I read eight verses a day for 22 days, and I got back into the habit of doing it. I highly recommend it if it is something that if, if you are struggling with your quiet time today. There is a time and a place for reading large chunks, and it is a good exercise to try to read through the Bible as in, in, in larger chunks. But it is better to think deeply on eight verses than it is to skim eight chapters. So let me encourage you, pick up your Bible. Don't let yourself get struck, get stuck. The second way that our love can abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment is to read other Christian literature. So there are a lot of good helps um, and, and devotionals and, and Christian books that should spur your heart to love the Lord. Um, your pastor, I guarantee, would be thrilled to recommend books to you. But you should never let reading other Christian literature take the place of reading the Bible. That always has to be central. But let me recommend, pick up, pick up some, some good Christian literature that comes recommended that will, that will challenge your mind and that will push you to love the Lord. And number three is church attendance. You should be hearing the word, which is in the coronavirus, it's a little, it's different. So it's not necessarily attendance, but thankfully we're at least half here uh, today, but, but hear the word preach. That is another way that you learn to love through your knowledge and discernment abounding. So point number one was uh, a, a well-informed love. Point number two is eschatological ethics. So the goal of love abounding in knowledge and all discernment is right moral behavior. Look, at, look with me at verse 10. So after it says, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, verse 10 says, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. So... Love is a means to an end, which sounds like a strange statement. But, it, but our love has a goal. It has not only a direction, but it has a destination. The so that informs us that what comes next in the verse is the goal of a well-informed, discerning love. The three goals of a well-informed love abounding is, number one, so that you can approve what is excellent or approve what is best. It includes but goes beyond right and wrong. It extends to the area of wisdom. 
So, at some point, right and wrong should kind of become second nature. And it gets to the point of, of, of evaluating different circumstances that are not necessarily clearly explicated in Scripture. Not all matters in your life are a matter of sin or not. Are a matter of good and evil. Some things require wisdom, like how do you spend your time? There are sinful ways to spend your time, but things like how much sleep you're getting normally comes down to a matter of wisdom. And these, this is where you start to really hone your life past just sin and not, but to really approve what is best. Paul wants what is best for the Philippian church. He wants things to be excellent. And so, how are you spending your time? What books are you reading? How are you spending your money? These type of questions require not as much right and wrong, but wisdom. Paul is not lecturing or angry with the Philippians. He loves the Philippian church, and he wants your decisions to be driven by a well-informed love that leads to approving what is excellent. When you love God and neighbor in the right way, when that area of your life is abounding and growing, you can then move from surviving to thriving. Right and wrong will become second nature, and you can begin to hone and prune different areas of your life. If I could steal the sub or the the title of a famous business book, you can go from good to great. Paul is praying for them to live their lives as close to complete and perfect sanctification, as close to perfection as they can this side of heaven. That's what he wants them to do, and that should be the result of our love abounding in knowledge and all discernment. The second goal, the second thing he wants to see from our love abounding is to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So purity. Purity refers to sincerity. It is without hidden motives. And it may tie into the fact that some in this area, in, uh, in the area of Philippi, were preaching the gospel from selfish ambition. They were preaching it for their own motives, but Paul doesn't want that for the Philippians people. He wants them to, to, to have pure, sincere, upfront motives of loving the Lord and getting others to do so as well. It is a complete and sole devotion to the Lord, not serving two masters, not double-eyed, not um, serving your own desires or motives, but pure and sincere. So it is to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Blameless means without offense. It means, it means giving no excuse for wrong. It is being above reproach. The first speaks to the motive. The second speaks to the action. And finally, it is pure and blameless, not in and of themselves, but for the day of Christ. Christian ethics is ultimately eschatological in orientation. To say that another way, it is, it is ultimately directed and pointed and lived in mind of the final judgment. It is lived in the mind of the second coming of Christ. Christians live with the last day, the coming of Christ, with the final Judgment in mind. This is a call to live now as we will be then. In heaven, there will be no complete, we will be completely devoted to the Lord with no mixed motives or selfishness to be found, and we will always act in accordance with His law and His purposes for our lives. But that is not the case now. Paul is praying for the Philippians that it would be so. The third goal 
of love abounding is to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So filled with the fruit of righteousness is an interesting phrase, but I think it means to be, to be filled with the fruit of righteousness is to be characterized by the conduct that God himself approves of, to be, or that judges to be right. So it is to be characterized by the conduct that God himself judges to be right. We are talking about doing the right things. To, we, the fruit of righteousness is being, living, or thinking in a godly way. But, church, hear me, our ability to do this comes not from ourselves, but only through Christ. If you think that Paul is going to let us get away without reminding us where our righteousness actually comes from, he is not. If everything I've said before sounds like works righteousness and legalism, or, or if you've gotten the idea that I think that you can earn your way to heaven, that, you, that, that reading your Bible or going to church or reading other Christian literature is the way to become a Christian, it is not. Christians are the ones whose love abounds to the goal of godly character. It is through Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, ascension, and intercession on my behalf that I have any footing at all. It is because that God became a man and lived a perfect life and then took my sin on the cross and bore the wrath of God that was that was meant for me and my sin, that I can love God at all. It is because the Holy Spirit has, has awakened my eyes to see the beauty of Christ, to see the sacrifice that he made for me, and everything that that means that I can love my God and my fellow neighbor. It is because I am born again and stand in Christ, that and in his righteousness, that my life can look at all like one where love is abounding, where my discernment is growing, where I am approving what is excellent and so that I can stand before God on the day of judgment and be pure and blameless. I, it is not my righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness. But Christ's righteousness impacts the way we live. When we are given this righteousness, when it is imputed to us, that changes our actions. It comes with consequences in the way we think, live, and be. It is through his death that we live. If you don't know Christ, all of the striving and effort, all the Bible reading is for nothing. And it ultimately will not save you. It is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that anyone can be saved. So finally, point number three, all of this, our love abounding more and more in knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus, is ultimately to the glory and praise of God. God is glorified when we love him, and when we love him rightly in a way that he is expressed about who he is in Scripture. He is glorified in our lives when we live in a way that honors the sacrifice that his son made. He is glorified and praised by the saints forever when we are presented on the day of Christ pure and blameless, righteous through the sacrifice of his son. That is the ultimate glory of God that we can give him is to trust in his son and his sacrifice. And that 
praises and glorifies him in everything that we do. When this happens, we become living, breathing examples of his great love and mercy. And this is honoring to God. He wants you to delight in him, delight in his word. That is how you praise and glorify God. It is, the, it is learn to love the way that he taught us to love. Will you pray with me? Our Father and our God, let our love abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Teach us the areas of our lives where we are lacking in love. Show us the way to, to, to be better, to, to think differently. God, I pray that this church, that we as a, as a, as a body of believers may approve what is best. And be pure and blameless when we stand before you, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And God, ultimately, I pray that you receive honor and praise and glory from our lives through all of this. In your precious son's name, amen.